Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. And welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer, and your chief investigator of images. You may have been enjoying the excitement of the first two podcasts, which have featured the archivist of Blenheim Palace, Dr. Alexa Frost, and Ophelia Field, the author of The Favourite. In those, we gave you some remarkable inside reveals from World Heritage Site Blenheim, where Sarah Churchill lived. And it was very exciting. We've had lots of changes happening with the podcast to give you all the more access to art history. So we've opened up a Patreon. You can find out more by going to patreon.com slash artdetective. What we want to do is give you the highest quality podcasts ad-free. Those ads can be a real turn-off, can't they? And by giving us a little bit of extra support, it means that we can work harder and offer you more great art history reveals. We can also improve the quality of our podcasts and we can keep making it if you keep supporting us. You can unlock all sorts of different things by going through and supporting us. You can get access to pre-sales on live shows. You can get exclusive video footage. I'll be going to lots of exciting places over the next few months and I'll be doing little short clips that I'll upload to my site that you can then access and enjoy for free. The next episode is a big one. It is coming to you from Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, where I'll be interviewing Pieter Greaves and Jenny Butterworth behind the scenes to talk about the reconstruction of the Staffordshire Hordes helmet, possibly the most single exciting Anglo-Saxon find of the last 10 years. So please continue to support us. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy. Today, very excited to be in Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery because of something that really hasn't happened in the last 10 years of this magnitude. Something this exciting in terms of Anglo-Saxon treasures. Uh, introduce yourselves, my lovely guests. I'm Jenny Butterworth. I am a heritage consultant uh, and I have been project managing the project we're going to talk about. Mm. You have to keep it secret still, there's still a reveal to come. I am Pieta Greaves and I've been, yeah, and I'm a conservator and I've been working on the project doing some sort of organic elements on the Horde helmet. 
And what is it that we are so excited about today? We're dealing with the Staffordshire Hoard, that huge find of 2009 of the most Anglo-Saxon gold and silver ever discovered in one place. But what's the big reveal, Jenny? The, there's, there's been a very large research project, the uh, best part of 10 years, and what that has definitively shown is that it contains the remains of one magnificent helmet. And um, we have made a reconstruction from the original parts of what we think it looked like. It's, and we have the image here in front of us, so you'll be able to, to get it with the podcast, Art Detective Listeners. It is spectacular. Now, I have been a chief Anglo-Saxon nerd for about 20 years, and up until this point, we had, what helmets did we have? The Benty Grange helmet, that famous one with the boar on, on the top, top and the cross on the, on the nose piece. The Coppergate helmet with the lovely Christian prayer running over the top. And of course, Sutton Who, big famous one. This is better, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Am I allowed to say it's better? Well, I think you can say that, yes. I mean, we're biased, obviously. We think it's great. Um, but yeah, I think it's obviously, you feel like it's quite a close cousin of Sutton Who, I think. Um, but yes, it is. I think it's the only one that we think actually had some form of bristly crest rather than a solid crest. And we we know that because the conservation that um, Pieta did, it revealed this sort of paste in the channel that shows that it was a sort of like cement for holding something in there. And obviously we don't know exactly what that was, and, but in our reconstruction we've gone for horsehair. Because mm. I mean, that's the difference, isn't it? I suppose when you look at the Sutton Hoo helmet, which is so iconic, which you know, yeah. it, it's one of the British Museum's most famous holdings, but it doesn't have this massive prow of, of red horsehair, which again, I think seems quite Roman. Was that, were you sort of citing known examples when you were thinking about reconstructing it? It was a, a mix between sort of what, what we know is already sort of existed in the Roman world. It's obviously a Roman type helmet in terms of style and shape. Um, and the difference, the main difference being that the channel is quite low, mm. so it had to be something that wasn't so heavy that it would fall over. Or so choosing the horse here was really decided by the functionality of the channel itself mm. and what actually would fit in there, because there are obviously other options. <laughs> yeah, um, feathers. Yeah, I like the idea of a great big wooden. <laughs> yeah, but, but just some things just wouldn't just wouldn't fit in there, especially with the pace that was found through the analysis of the research project. You know, you can't get that paste of beeswax and animal glue in there and so many other things. Mm. So the horsehair sort of naturally was a product that we, you know, would, would work in, mm. in that channel. So it seemed for us the, the more likely option. And I mean, if we, if we retrace our steps a little bit and think about the significance of this, what's, uh, what was found and what's happened over the last 10 years. Um, so found in 2009, you know, more than 4,000 pieces, weren't there, fragments. And we're talking kilograms of gold, silver, but all in, in fragments. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's really important to say, you know, that the, it, the reconstruction of the helmet is the result of an extraordinary collaborative process. So many people have been involved first in the research, that, you know, there have been conservators, there have been scientists, archaeologists, art historians, all kind of, it's like... It's not like one jigsaw. It's actually like lots and lots of jigsaws all mixed together. So it's like sorting it out. 
and then reassembling all the different objects that are in it, one of which is the helmet, and then obviously a whole team then of craftspeople as well of different sorts to build the reconstruction. So, yeah, it's um, it's been an enormous piece of work, really. But I think I, I really think it gives you seeing the reconstruction of the helmet all those 4,000 fragments, you sort of look at them, don't you, and you go, wow, they're really beautiful. Mm. But it's a bit hard to understand what you're looking at. Whereas when you look at the reconstruction of the helmet, you go, oh. But it also sheds the horde, I think, in a really different light as well. Because one of the things, I remember seeing the whole horde exhibited together, and it filled tabletops just from one end of a huge room to the other. And I mean, what an exercise in putting the tiny kind of microscopic fragments together to, to make up particularly kind of the figural bands, the decorative bands. But for me, it was always about a collection of, sort of high status military pieces that were pretty much smash and grab off the battlefield. You know, go peel off some sword pommels, take off a cross from the top of the standard, that sort of. But this is something else, isn't it? How do you think it's going to change our understanding of the Horde? I think what it does initially is actually start, you might, you, it sort of starts people thinking about the people, actually, mm. that as a collection of broken weapons, it's quite hard for, for people to understand, really. Mm. But actually, as, a, as an object, you can start thinking about, yes, yeah, someone would have worn it, and then you can kind of relate back to the objects and someone would have worn the crosses and, you know, carried the swords. And I think it adds people into the story, which could be seen as kind of, yeah, quite hard and difficult to kind of pull together in your mind if you don't know the world of the Anglo-Saxons and swords and how you use them. And so it's just a different, it's a different way of thinking about I like that. You still haven't let me try it on, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think that that is absolutely true. It's it's that idea of how does it sit on someone's head? What sort of an impression would the person wearing this have made? And I mean, we are talking... Royal, really, aren't we? Let's yeah. let's let's be brave. Let's put our neck out here because I've had to be brave in the past with Sutton Hoo and say yes, I think it's the royal house of Redwood of East Anglia. This could only have belonged to someone of the highest status, couldn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, Chris Fern, who's the sort of archaeological lead on the project, he refers to it as a proto crown. It's in that interesting period, isn't it, where kingship is really developing, and and I think you do. You do, it has a real presence. When you look at the reconstruction, you can really feel that it's a powerful thing. You, nobody is going to mistake you for somebody else if you're wearing it. <laughs> but also, they are remarkably rare. I mean, while we'll find thousands of spears and yeah. there's a good handful of swords, helmets are incredibly rare. Yeah. And I think that there is a preconception with later armoury that helmets are purely for protective purposes in mm. battle. And we do find those, don't we, mm. the sort of boring skull caps with yeah. You know, yeah. Just, just what you need. This is not the same thing. This is decorative. This is, would you say it's got a ceremonial function? I don't know, you're the expert. Well, <laughs> no, 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 no. You see, I get us, excited about the ceremonial. Yeah, I think, for me, I think what it says is it's about being seen. Yeah. It's it's sort of, it's about, in, but I know, but I think you could say that about a lot of the things in the horde, couldn't you? They mm. they are altogether quite unusual. Mm. You know the the cross, you know that we think is a standard cross that's designed to be seen. Mm. You know some mm. of the other bits that are from they're from sort of high status objects that mark you out, yeah. and this is the ultimate marking out. 
when, when I first came to see it, uh, the curators were describing the people wearing these things as psychopathic peacocks, which I just think <laughs> sums it up. And this is sort of the absolute yeah. peak of that. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. in terms of its reconstruction, in terms of its structure, it, it is delicate in places, isn't it? Well, yes and no, because actually in terms of functionality, it would function and give you protection. Um, so it's obviously got a steel liner and, if it, if, if, and, and then the leather and actually people think of leather as uh, quite a soft material mm. but in reality to, when you strike leather with a blade it's quite hard to cut through it mm. and then the, most the, the decorative elements are the most fragile but when you put those all together and rivet them on and they're all tied together actually when you hold it and move it it doesn't feel fragile it mm. does feel like you could it's a, it's a functional object. Um, I'm not sure how much on a battlefield, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but certainly in everyday sort of movement, you wouldn't have to treat it so carefully, I think. I think it, yeah. it, it does have like a, an everyday use. A robustness. Yeah. It has a robustness to it, yeah. yeah. And it's and difficult, isn't it? Because with Sutton Hill, we know that though it wasn't necessarily used in battle because there's mm -hmm. no battle scars, there's no cuts or damages. Yeah. But this. Well, this was deliberately broken up, isn't it? Yeah, there isn't. There are a lot of cut marks on the material, but probably from the removal and the taking apart of it rather than battle injury. So yes, we just don't know. But I, I think one of the crucial things that reconstructing it has shown is when it when the hoarders first discovered those cheap pieces. You know, people were saying, "Oh, they're too small, or they're not hinged mm. like Saturn." Who it could never actually be a helmet you could wear. Mm. But you know, when we tried it on Mark, our lovely reenactor, you know, it's quite heavy. It's not impossibly heavy, but actually the cheek pieces really do work and he could turn mm. his head and it's quite well balanced. It definitely, you can wear it mm. and it's functional in that sense, even if, you know, whatever you decide yeah. to do when you're wearing it, but it definitely works. I think we've answered those initial doubts about mm. it, you know. Yeah, but also, I mean, we can come on to talking about craftsmanship in a minute, but I want to have a, a little look at some of the imagery on it because um, this is an art detective. We need to do some close <laughs> visual analysis, my friends. Um, there is, there's a lot on there that we see on things like the Coppergate helmet, like that nose piece with the sort of animal interlace mm. coming down it, which is quite traditional. But these figural panels are really exciting for me because they, they are very identifiable. They're coming, there's sort of a lineage of these sorts mm. of helmet panels, isn't there? What do we know about them, Jane? Well, again, you you are much more of an expert than we are. About <laughs> You're not supposed things. to say that. <laughs> <laughs> You're being too kind to me. <laughs> but yes, I mean there are parallels to these types of panels um, on the Swedish Valsgard yeah. Vendor helmets yeah. and Sutton Who, obviously, mm -hmm. this forms that link as well. There's also one of the panels is the is a motif of a rider on a horse, kind mm. of ride, riding somebody down, and that mm. crops up. In lots of places so yes it it, it has strong parallels yeah. you know across europe probably i yeah. suppose because when i spoke to george speak about because i asked him is this a helmet that was made here or was it an import and he from the design he said you know there is enough characteristics to say that it's more likely that it was created here mm -hmm. so there are slight changes in the design where he can see those sort of sort of you know slightly more Anglo-Saxon England designs to it. But gathering Yeah, but wider using influence. a wider, yeah. yeah. And again, you can say that about the whole hoard, really. It's yeah. a, it is, can't you? It's an extraordinary sort of amalgam of, of, of styles and mm. borrowings and developments, mm. and yeah. And again, with that relationship with Sutton Hoo, 
one of the things that always strikes me is that we, we tend to think of the North Sea as sort of the divide, but it was a conduit. They were constantly yeah. exchanging goods, ideas. They tied their genealogies together across from mm. East Anglia to, to Sweden. So, you know, it's, it's, and modern ideas of nationalities are very different from these sorts of genealogical connections. Yeah. And I think it's amazing you see these links, but it does seem to be coming out of East Anglia, doesn't it? Now that, oh, how do we deal with that given that it's found in Mercia? <laughs> what do we do with this thorny problem? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, throughout the research project, um, you know, Chris Fern, who's the who's the art expert, has has nobody has ever really been saying that these are Mercian objects. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the hoard obviously does belong to Mercia quite strongly in a modern identity way, but it's unlikely that many, if any, of the objects are made here. So they've all come from somewhere else, and so then you do think, you know, there are these. There are a lot of mechanisms in this period in which people gather wealth together, whether it's battle loot or tribute or gift giving, mm-hmm. aren't there? And and you've got to, I think, this helmet and the hoard sort of fits into that. Mm-hmm. Really She's been practically democratic, isn't she? Because I'm just saying, mm-hmm. come on, tell me, <laughs> tell me it's Pender's treasure battle, like battle treasure. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> but we can certainly go with dates, can't we? Because I think yeah. everybody is pretty much coming down on the helmet being between 600 and 650 but you know i'm veering towards the latter there are and there are other objects in the hoard which are probably older than that yeah. and and yes the helmet mm. probably is that date but then yes i think the burial is a little bit later mm. um maybe up to 675 so it is that you know that is when Pender is around. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, if we talk about... This is the same problem, of course, that everyone faces with Sutton here. Do we say it's Redwald, King of the East Anglians? Um, do we say that the, this collection has been put together on the basis of some sort of battle campaign led by someone extremely powerful who is conquering lands in Northumbria and indeed East Anglia. Mm. Um, And again, you know, without knowing, without this helmet having a, you know, Pender was here scratched on it. (laughs) We can't be conclusive, can we? But, um, But it tells us a story, a narrative about conflict and about hegemonies, doesn't it? About changing powers of different kingdoms. Is that how you've read it as well then, I think what it says, well, as a conservator, I'm not, I'm not an ex-Anglo-Saxon uh, oh. specialist, <laughs> but I think what it is, it's a, it, these are people who have access at a, at a, to you know, the kings, the, the warrior elite, and that can only be other kings and warrior elite, more like, you know, you know these aren't things that have been gathered by everyday people. Mm. So there's definitely a link there to whatever we think that warrior elite class of people are doing <laughs> and what we think they're doing is you know they're going off and battling each other aren't they for, yeah. For, yeah, and well, extending their power and influence and again kingdom building yeah. so you know obviously we'll never know for sure but you know it's certainly one of the stronger arguments that could be made yeah. for yeah. it but in, in terms of its deliberate destruction that's the other thing I've been fascinated about what do we know about that because it was dismantled yeah, or, it's yeah. quite. It's heavily. Yeah. It's heavily destroyed. Yeah. You'd have to say, as as are you know many of yeah. the objects in the hoard, um, and obviously, uh, this is the really Pieter's side of things. But you know the silver panels are, are quite vulnerable. So some mm. of the fragmentation is to do with the fact they've been in yeah. the plough soil for so many th- 
hundreds of years. But, you know, quite a lot of it we can see was deliberately done before. And, you know, the, the steel and the leather and the structure was completely absent. It's only mm. the decoration that survived. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons for doing the reconstruction is to say, you know, we have this sort of shell of decoration, but we don't know how it works structurally yeah. as an object and how do we take all those bits that were very deliberately taken apart and see how they fit back together. And did yeah. you see deliberate? Did the, the, you said that the silver seems to have fed worse in the soil. Yeah, so some things look torn like you would after many years in the soil, silver and brittles over time. So some things just naturally break up, if, especially if they're in plough soil. But some things you can see definite cut marks on. Mm. So cut marks through to the bottom tray element before the cheek pieces. Those are deliberately cut up in places. Wow. And you can see on some of the, the decorative foils themselves, there are deliberate straight lines. You know, they, and they can only be cut marks. But are they cut marks? At, at what point they got those cut marks? Is it the destruction, or is it during the making? Or so it's answering those questions as well. It's like, do you need to cut it to fit it into a shape of the helmet? Do you need to cut it to dismantle it? Okay. So you sort of need yeah. to think those through those problems yeah. as well. And the, the cheek pieces have each got two sort of lo lobes or tabs to attach them, and they're, you know, they're completely snapped yeah. off in a way that seems unnecessary. Not un, you know. They're quite extreme. It's quite an extreme piece yeah. of taking but, it apart. But you see that across the hoard, don't you? I mean, one of yeah. the most powerful images I remember when they first were coming out of the ground was the way that the sword pommels, the, the nails were completely bent back because they've yeah. literally been ripped off. But yeah. to me, that it's something different. If you're going across a battlefield at the end of a battle, sweeping over like the eagles and ravens, look at me and my old English references, um, and peeling off these treasures, these bits that you can take away and, and sell yeah. on or melt down. Um, that feels different to deliberately destroying what essentially is almost like the crown jewels, mm -hmm. breaking up someone's crown yeah. deliberately. Now, you know, I would be able to kind of go on all sorts of flights <laughs> of fantasy about what would cause that. But, but this idea of the deliberate destruction, I think, yeah. is really fascinating. Yeah, and I actually, I would, in terms of what you would remove from a battlefield, I don't know if you'd, you would remove the gold elements from a sword, given mm. that the sword blade itself is also really useful. Worth mm. more. So I'm not sure how much of this would actually be done on a battlefield. I think it's probably easier to take the objects as whole yeah. and yeah. dismantle them elsewhere. And reuse those those blades, exactly, those, those yeah. shields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think it's quite complicated about how even hey, when you take things apart and who gets who and what yeah. goes where. And I think it's quite a complicated process. Mm. Um, yeah. And that's either, you know, in terms of destruction, you can either think of it ritually or functionally. Yeah. So in terms of if, you're, if this was going to be a hoard that was to be melted down, say, then you do want to cut up things quite dramatically because it helps you melt them down easier. So there are arguments for both camps, really, yeah. about why yeah. this, or it's a bit of both, or it's done. Yeah. And, I, and <laughs> I think also that destruction, and what Peter's saying also tells us about the our other really interesting group of people that relate to the world, and that is the craftspeople. You, Absolutely. You think probably at both ends of the process, there are mm. craft people involved. Good point. And, you know, you, you of all sorts, really. But yeah. I think... That's yeah. There, there, there is a there's a specialist hand in in the hoard in many different ways. And sure. even if they are melting down the materials, they came back to the grass people yeah. to be re potentially yeah. reused. But of course, something holds that up in as much as the stuff is buried. 
Yes, buried quite yeah. deliberately, buried in the yeah. roots of a tree. Is that that was some idea at some point, wasn't it, that I it was buried under an oak tree or something? I think that stems back to when they did an excavation. There's the sort of the hilltop where it was buried. The sort of geology and thus probably the environment's a little bit different there to some of the surroundings. So, and it was a sort of you know a, a old sort of ancient oak pasture sort of scrub mm. so I think that's where those ideas come from and um, you know that's still true the geology of the top of that hill is a bit different and it's um, on a crossroads isn't it oh it's on a it's junction on a, between Litchfield and Tamworth no um yeah it's, it's between so it's, the royal court and the ecclesiastical center isn't it's it? near yeah it's quite near Litchfield yeah. and it's on yeah. the what was Watling Street the Roman road which is still a sort of arterial route I guess mm. in this period and it's it's a really distinctive hilltop you know when you stand yeah. next to it and you look at it you think oh yeah that's it, where I'd yeah. leave a punch yeah. in <laughs> yeah you know if I was going to come back for it I'd know it was there yeah. or you know if I wanted somewhere that stands out as a yeah. it's it's an it's an interesting spot for sure well then coming back to the cross people because this is the other bit that's hugely fascinating about this reconstruction they've had to go back to techniques as much as we know about craftsmaking, craftsmen's techniques of the Anglo-Saxon period, um, what bits were particularly exciting for you as a conservator to, to see them remaking? I quite like the bits I did. <laughs> They're the best bits. Yeah. They are the best um, bits. I think the whole thing was thinking about looking at the evidence that we could found through the research project and then bringing it to life, really. I think that's the... And, and actually taking that thing where we think it's made from these things... Mm. Is, is it made from these things? <laughs> can, can we make this work? And I think that's that's been the the biggest interest to me, mm-hmm. and actually being able to go, especially in the crest with the with the beeswax. You know, can can we make that work? Does it? Does yeah, it stand up? Think, yeah, does it stand up? Should <laughs> yeah. it stand up? Yeah. yeah. You know, because that's the other thing as well. Should it be flopped over? Should it be a different colour? Should it be? You know, it's just sort of. Mm. Lots and of I, options. And I think the, it is an interesting... I mean, the helmet and the hall generally, the scientific analysis has shown that actually it's full of... It, I mean, obviously, it looks like a set of gold and silver objects, but it is full of pastes and mm. glues and funny bone. little bone bits and yeah. wooden bits to make it work. And actually, so the helmet, you know, like the, the band around the bottom with the, the foil was sort of set in beeswax and Pieta yeah. reproduced that. So you get this... You know, it's a proper sort of mixed yeah. media yeah. thing that involves yeah. craft of lots of different sorts. It's not just a goldsmith, goldsmithing. So well, this is one yeah. of the challenges we're constantly up against on Art Detective is mm. that sort of our idea of an artwork is a painting hanging on a gallery wall. Mm. But actually, the craftsmanship of an age gone yeah. involved lots of different mediums, mm. loads of yeah. which we don't have. So we lose all our perishables. We lose our leather, our bone, our wood yeah. on yeah. the whole unless yeah. it's found in these fragmentary pieces. But you were working then with people who were presumably toughening up the leather, um, yeah. and we were working alongside each other. How did the kind of reconstruction aspect come along? Well, yes, that's quite interesting, because me and Jeannie was actually discussing this the other day about how we're kind of, we're kind of I'm not sure if we're going for the right way in, because obviously we started with the outside and we mm. built in, but when you made it originally, would you start from the inside and build mm. out and then make things fit? Like, yeah. wh- which bit would you actually start with as, a, as an Anglo-Saxon maker to make the yeah. helmet the right size for the person? Yeah, because yeah, we effectively had to retro-engineer it to yeah. understand how it was built. But obviously, yeah. they wouldn't have done it that way around. No. So that, that was interesting. But yeah. I think the other thing is that, obviously... I mean, I'm, there were probably not a lot of craftspeople then who were capable of doing it either, but they mm. probably would have worked in a more... You know, we are like when we were looking for an armourer to make the steel, mm. everybody we went to recommended 
um, Jeffrey Hildebrandt, who's in Canada, because he is the best armourer. Now, probably, it might not, it probably isn't really ideal that he's not here with us, (laughs) but there there isn't an option, because there aren't that many people Mm. who are experienced at crafting that sort of thing. So our process had to be pragmatic. Um, But I I think we definitely learned that the assembly of it and so on is a, it it can't have been one craftsperson Mm. doing it. One person doesn't have enough hands, literally. You know, it yeah. took Pieta and Sam Chilton, the metalsmith, a lot of weeks of intensive joint work to make mm. it um, fit together. So that I think that's yeah. interesting. And also, when you put so the decorative panels are attached to the leather, so every time you put a rivet in, a little bit of the tension of the leather changed. So as you went round, that's it, also sort of moved in slightly different ways that you didn't expect. And yeah, yeah. So it's sort of like tensioned in many different yeah. <laughs> ways as you go around the helmet, yeah. and then you attach it to the steel. Yeah. So it'll be yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to see. And I, I like well. what you said about because we at one point I was saying you know can you speed it up can we just like drill the hole? <laughs> oh, you fell off. <laughs> leather work because I know you really can't because it yeah. the leather sort of it heals itself a bit yeah. when you when you put the rivets through but obviously if you've drilled it like you're saying you've interrupted the tension and it's just not the same so I think yeah. you know it's really interesting yeah so the leather closes really quick so Sam would you know use an awl to put the hole through but if she didn't get the rivet through fast enough the holes can't oh, <laughs> so it's, it's also quite a frustrating process so, did you make up the leather as well then because that's a whole new yeah so Mark the, well. the man we see in the, who's wearing the reconstruction yeah. he's also a leather worker so he created mm-hmm. the leather form underneath based on the steel yeah and then and then and then and then yeah. we attached the decorative yeah. elements because you made that really interesting decision the way it's exhibited as well i love the fact you can see right up inside and see how yeah. it's all tied together what's happening in there yeah. was that you know an actual decision or was that just you yeah. didn't, we you didn't have anything else to we, put in it there was the, it was yeah. a it wasn't a falling out but we didn't, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't agree we're in different camps it's on really, the like if you yeah. look at the the Sutton Who replica mm. in the British Museum it's an extremely tidy object and the inside is lined with what looks like quite a beautiful sort of kid or goat mm. or something and the question was should we do the same to this one and and There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. 
This is the pineapple mango flavor my fave. You know what? All five craveable splash refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. In the, in the end, the director of collections here took the decision about this one, that not because, and I think I mm. like that. It means you can see that it's mm. got a bit of steel inside it. And, you know, maybe when Mark tried on, he had a sort of rough um, wool cap, you know, mm. of the sort that I'm sure everybody had in mm. the medieval period. And I think, you know, maybe that's how they mm. did it. You know, you have a thing that you put on first. Yeah. You might even have a sort yeah. of bit of padding here and then you drop your helmet on. I yeah. don't know. We don't know if it was lined or not. Um, I guess pra- in a practical sense, if you also took it out in the weather, that lining would have to be sort of stuck on or something, either an animal glue or a wax. Or, and actually that probably wouldn't fare very well yeah. long term. Yeah. So actually in a practical sense, they're probably not very useful linings. Yeah. You know, because they'll just yeah. fall off over time. And But then I think, yeah. I think we're, t- again, this is why I kind of come down on the side of these things being used as... as Crown jewels, ceremonials, mm. things that come out once in a while. Um, yeah, your battle hardy leather skull cap's going to do most of the work. Yeah. But something like this, I think it is for parading. I think, yeah, mm. you could well wear it on the battlefield mm. and rec- be recognised by your men as mm. the leader, the ruler, the king, the one wearing yeah. the gold helmet. But on the whole, I think it's probably... That's just how I see it. I like yeah. to see the king sat in the throne wearing a great big yeah. gold yeah. helmet. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm not sure you'd want to take your horse hair out in the rain. <laughs> no. <laughs> a lot of this beeswax yeah. is going as well <laughs> on a rainy yeah. day, isn't no. it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a, let's have a little think then about how this is going to change our understanding of um, the Horde, but also this period in Mercia's history, this period in this area's history. Why is it so significant? I think... I think in modern terms, it's extremely significant because it is a new step in helping audiences understand the Horde when they look at it. You know, it's a great step forward in understanding the process that all those fragments originally derived from a much smaller number of discrete objects like helmets, swords, maybe saddles, you know, all sorts of things. So I think that's very important. But I think the other thing, which we probably haven't said enough, is that this is, this helmet is the first step in publishing all of the research. You know, as as we said earlier, it's been a huge team in the research. You know, it's funded by Historic England and the museums, lots of experts. And this is just part of the bigger story of what all of the Horde tells us about Mercia and its neighbours. And, you know, that will be published next year. And I think then you can really start unpicking what the Horde means yeah. and what it tells us mm. about the Mercian story. And, you know, it's, it'll, that story will never be finished, but there'll be an awful lot more data out there. Mm. And uh, mm. we should, yeah, I mean, the really great thing is, as well as the big publication, the entire catalogue will be released free oh, on wow. the Archaeological Data Service. So anybody will be able to look at all of these objects themselves and see what they think. Wow, mm. wow. And is that the same thing? I mean, maybe coming at it from a slightly different point of view as conservator, that we're learning a lot about the making as well, aren't we? Which is new. It is, and I think it's, a, yeah, definitely. I think there's a greater appreciation that these objects are, you know, created by real craftspeople. Mm. You know, the de- you don't really see the detail until you get underneath the microscope, and you kind of just think, why have they done that? When, <laughs> when only I can see it really close. It is, I think that... that extreme level that these people were just master craftsmen yeah. um, 
that has really come out of this process as well. Mm. That they had a, a, a great understanding. Actually, the, one of the um, scientists who did the pace analysis on the beeswax, he said it was interesting for him to think about people who, you know, if you're a, if you're a beekeeper, you probably there's not a lot you're going to do with the, the the elite class. So there, there are these people who kind of are in this world where they kind of go from the bottom to the top of society, gathering these materials to make these sort of. Yeah, these kingly objects. Yeah, and in the middle of those, you've got these sort of almost like well in the Smith godlike like craftspeople yeah. who do seem mm. to be able to defy nature with their microscopic mm. skills. That their eyes must have been yeah. getting older with the more experience they got. But the delicacy mm. of some of that cloisonné work, the beading on this, blew my mind when I went to see the, the mm. on the reconstruction. Yeah. Um, it's incredible to think how they did that with no electricity, no running water. Yeah, you, I think you, you have to be naturally quite short-sighted, I think, to really yeah. do it. Um, um, yeah. Maybe you have an army of small children. Nimble fingers to the eyes, I think. That's yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's one thing that um, Kevin Leahy, one of the experts, also mm. said also is that they must have had an extraordinarily good understanding of colour temperature and an mm. understanding of fire and furnaces you know mm. now we do it all with a thermometer but you, they must have totally because there's particularly some of the soldering mm. it's so precise i mean there are a few bits in the hall where it's gone a bit wrong but they're not that many you know yeah. there's mostly it's really yeah. good you know they, they must really have understood exactly what temperature their furnace was when they were doing stuff i think that's really interesting i mean from this one object from this helmet we can think about the individual that wore it, we can think about how it was taken, how it was dismantled, and then we can blow this object up onto all these platforms where we're looking at furnaces and beekeepers and yeah. you know the workings of a battlefield. It's it's a gateway into all of that, isn't mm. it? Which I think is what makes it so exciting. Yeah. Guys, we've got to we've got to tell people how they can come and see this helmet. How can they come There there are actually two, exactly the same. One at the Potteries Museum in Stoke and Trent one at Birmingham Museums here and they're both on display from today so anyone can come and see them or you can uh, on the internet use the hashtag Horde Helmet on Twitter to find out more information fantastic fantastic it is such a pleasure I I could talk about this helmet I probably will continue to talk about this helmet for many many years to come but it's an honour to be with you both and to see it in the flesh like this thank you so much thank Thank you. you Remember to subscribe to the show, and if you can't support us on Patreon, don't worry, you can help us by sharing with your friends and followers the Art Detective link, and also leaving us a review on iTunes. Every little thing helps. Thanks, guys. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.